All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to specifically focus on verses 26 through 27, but I'm actually going to read through 32. Uh, Robbie will be preaching on 28 through 32 next week. And so, but I just want to make sure that we don't kind of key in on one sin and think that that is the grossest sin of all, to make sure that we don't think that there's one particular sin that God is, is uniquely disgusted by because he's not. And that was the danger if we were to only read 26 and 27 and think that that is the, the, the lowest of lows. In some measure, there is a sense in which that is very near the bottom. But we need to make sure that we don't see how any way in which we fail to share or display the character of God or the fruit of the Spirit, that that too is equally deformative not something that we should play with. So we should have a great sobriety about the sinful ways in which we conduct ourselves and need to mortify those things. Will we be perfect in this life? I need a, a, a confession. No. So let's, let's take that off the table. So don't say, well, I, I failed to be perfect. Well, that's not news. That's fact. That is accepted. That's a ubiquitous truth that we need not uh, get tangled up with. What we need to do is recognize the ways in which we can continue to grow in the person and work of Christ and to use our sanctification, our time, our opportunities to mortify and vivify those things, mortify sin and vivify the person of Christ in us. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, uh, let me tell you the key truth though before we read that. It's that God's merciful judgment further gives us over to dishonorable passions that deform his image in us as a result of our suppression of his truth. Now, the most important words in that key truth is God's merciful judgment. It's important that you see that, that this is not something that, that is happening to you externally. It's not something that you were born this way and you just can't help it in some measure. It, you, you need to see that Satan is not in control. God is. God is sovereign. And so this turning over is for his purposes. And if it is not final judgment, it is always for his redemptive reconciling purpose, which is why we can have hope. While we, we must be sober about sin, we can also be incredibly hopeful uh, because of his ability to reach to the uttermost. Amen? All right. Let's hear God's word. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
And the question that I have for us that is very important for us to consider, and I want you to think about yourself in particular and maybe some ways in which you have parsed out different sins as having some sort of different effect, like that your sin is somehow not as bad as someone else's. That's very important that you keep yourself in view as we go through this sermon. So the first question that I have for us that's very important is, where have you seen sin of any kind? I want to pause there. Of any kind, and let's say your particular kind. Did you hear the list of things that Paul listed out? Was there anything he missed? Haughty alone would get us in a lot of ways, which means prideful, which means you think you're better than someone else. Think about all the other things that he listed. So, so is there any sin that helps to crown us, you, with honor and glory? Have you ever lost your temper and thought, man, I'm glad y'all got to see that. There was a brilliance to that. I, I, that's why y'all were squinting, because the Shekinah glory was coming through. <laughs> right? No. Not even when you cut someone off and there's no one to see it, but only you know your own heart as you called for the death of that person and their entire lineage from the face of the earth. This is very very important that you get this. And again, I, I know we've heard some of this stuff so much that you can kind of begin to go, yeah, 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 I get that. Let's move on to some end times type stuff. Uh, and I understand that, but you can't miss this because this creeps back in. In fact, this is where Satan wants to own you and destroy you. So it's, it's important that we remain vigilant to this concept. So is there any sin that you can think of that you've committed from this list of things and any other that were missed, and I don't think there were any, that, that crowned you with honor and glory? No. You can't think of one. If you can, let's talk because something's wrong. And, and so that's important that we have to admit straight away that all sin is deformative because what did God create you for? Psalm 8 tells us he created you to crown you, created me, created us, to crown us with honor and glory, which means we look more and more like him, that we display his characteristics, that we display the character of Jesus, not only for our sake, but for the life of the world, right? For the sake of the mission of God, so that others would be drawn to it's one of the reasons why he uses the language of light in reference to us, right? Remember what Jesus said. He said, don't put your light under a bushel. Well, what is your light? It is you, your honor and glory that you display in the, through the person and work of Jesus, the characteristics of God that this world desperately needs to see consistently in a people, right? That's why he says you need to be a city on a hill, a city on a hill that's dark that no one can find or a well-lit city. What is the light? Well, the light is God's presence in us. It is the Holy Spirit beaming through us, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, displaying fruits in keeping with repentance. So this is critical for you to establish and think first before we step into this text. Because if you think there's any sin that's it actually makes life better because think that's the trap, isn't it? For so many, we thought that the sin we were getting ourselves into was going to create greater freedom, that it was going to set us more free. 
But what we learn from Romans is that's not true. That's why Paul's going to use all that language of freedom and slavery as we get further in in chapters 5 and 6. And so, as we step into this text and see how dishonorable passions, the bodily display of, of who and whose we are, this is very important. Sin so deforms us that you can begin to see its effects. You can begin to see who and whose someone is in and through their demeanor and how they conduct themselves. And so Paul here says, for this reason. So what's the reason that God gives them up to these dishonorable passions? Well, if we step back just a verse before, he says, because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So this is an issue of idolatry. Again, I remind you, as Tim Keller said, look first to your heart, not to your hands. For your sinfulness, because it lurks first in the heart and then manifests itself in and through the hands. So if all you do is deal with the behavior, if all you do is clean up the bad behavior and learn how to behave well, have you fixed the problem? No, that's sin management, that's behavioral modification, which is a swifter path, is it not? I'll just try harder, I'll just do better. Well, God in his great grace makes us fail over and over and over again so that we would not be dependent upon ourselves, but instead be dependent on the means of grace. The only way this changes, the only way the surgery of the heart can be done is in and through the gospel. The Spirit, only the Spirit can change a hardened heart. So if you are battling a hard heart, if you are beginning to lose your taste for the things of the gospel, what should you do? Read more, pray harder, stay up later, eat less sugar, run faster, farther. No, no, run to the throne of grace to receive what you need because you stand at peace with God. If you are losing the taste for the things of the gospel, turn and bear the fruits in keeping with repentance so that the fruit of the Spirit would be displayed in you. And this is why we say which way you run is a clear indicator of your understanding of the gospel. If you move away from community when you sin, which, how many of you have seen that? That the more someone descends into a sinful life pattern, the more they're turned over to the dishonorable passions, what tends to happen with their attendance in any small group? That's usually the first loss. Now, I'm, I didn't just say that every one of you who's ever left a small group is guilty of some vile sin. Don't hear that. But it is often an indicator, which is why we as Christians should learn how to leave well. It's a whole other topic. But you begin to pull away. You begin to pull away from those closest to you. When you are caught in sin, you begin to not use the means of grace because they, don't, they taste more like ash in your mouth. Well, that actually should be a, a good indicator. No, lean in. Lean in instead to the community that you have. Confess your sins to one another. Don't be afraid to be known because you're going to be known one way or the other. Right? Better that you, you learn to be known in a way that's redemptive and humanizing instead of that which is deforming and dehumanizing. And so Paul says that, that God turns them over to what, what he says are dishonorable passions. That, that word is very important. So what does that mean these passions are not doing for those who've been turned over? It's not crowning them with honor and glory. 
It is not displaying the glory of God in and through them. It's not displaying Christ's finished work in them. And that's very important for us to recognize. And so he goes on to describe, and he begins with the women first, that they had turned themselves over to that which was not natural. And here what we see is they're being turned over to homosexual passions and lusts. Now there's a reason for this, and it's happening at, two, at least two different levels. Now one of the things that, that has to happen, in order for you to worship something, you have to be less than it. Otherwise, what's the point of worshiping it? We don't worship kind of as peer. We don't worship at a peer level. We worship that which is above us, that which we are striving toward, right? So if they were going to worship creatures and beasts, what did that mean they had to become? Less than. What was the only way in which for them to be less than natural beasts and creatures? Well, to do what they wouldn't do and not just like, you could say, well, we are uh, noetic and cognitive and beasts aren't. Well, you don't worship them because they're not cognitive and not noetic. When we worship that which, which we want to become, you've got to be less than in order to attain to. And so we, according to Psalm 8, are higher than the beasts of the field, and we have dominion over those things. So what's happening here is God's letting them see, okay, if that's what you want to worship, the only way you can worship beasts and creatures is you have to become unnatural. So this isn't just arbitrary. This was, this was very specific, and the hope, interestingly, in all of this was that it would cause them at some point to be roused by their unnatural behavior and see the effects of it generationally, right? Because in their, their circumstance and time, to not have children was essentially a death sentence for your family in many respects. And so, so that would mean the end of their line temporally. That means they would be snuffed out, their name snuffed out forever. This had great gravity and weight and should have shook them and also should have shook them in terms of other people recognizing, what have you become? What are you becoming? So that was one level that God was trying to show, you no longer bear any of, the, of my image that anybody can see. I am turning you over essentially to shock you back to life. And then on the other side, he chose this in particular because the Jews, remember the whole circumstance here in the Roman church, how the Jews and the Gentiles are at odds with one another as to who are the favored people of God. And so you have to imagine that the Jews would have been thinking, oh, finally, finally Paul's gotten to the part where he is declaring we are better than them because according to their Levitical law and their purity laws, this kind of sin, and this is starting to sound familiar at all, this kind of sin is the worst, most disgusting of all sins. To do that which was unnatural. They are violating the Genesis 1 cultural creation mandate. The very purpose for which they were created. And the Jews would have been thinking, see you disgusting wretches. Well, this is the danger of us only reading certain portions instead of reading the whole letter in one sitting. He's going to turn the guns on them next in chapter 2. And he's going to say, and such were some of you. You equally far, equally distant, equally broken, equally disgusting in the eyes of God in your deformation. 
which is why he went on and he kind of gave them a little preview when he listed all those other sins to which they were turned over. To which, think of this, how many of you have thought that gossiping was as bad to God as homosexuality? Do we prosecute that with the same fervor in our current circumstance? Well, you may say, well, that's not the main, Cameron, you, you, need to get, you need to pay attention to what's going on around here. I am. And I would say that gossip is the little fox that absolutely destroys the church from the inside out. It is an issue, if you think about it, more of the heart than the body. Anger, malice. Notice those, that other list had to do with things that occur internally. This is one of the few what murder is an extra, you got to murder someone externally as it turns out. This is one of the few where the body is keeping the score most presciently, where it's most obvious. The other things we can kind of clean up a little bit and call respectable. Now, did I just say that, that we don't have, that, that homosexuality is not sin? Did I just say that? No, it's insanely deformative. It carries us so far from the image of God, which is why it should sober us. It should be very sobering to us that sin does this kind of work in both the heart, mind, and body. What's interesting here is what he has listed. Think about how it's the same pattern we are called to worship the Lord with, heart, mind, and soul, and body. And strength is the term that she used, but that's body. And so what's happening is they are being carried completely away from. This should sober us that any of this kind of stuff could carry us that far from the image of God. We can't play with this stuff. We can't call evil good and good evil. But in our sobriety, it has to be a personal sobriety first instead of an external sobriety for everyone else. Remember, our tendency is that we want grace for us and justice for everyone else. No. You should want both. You should be sobered that all will be justly judged, right? That should sober us. It should also, and this is very important, this is one of the other purposes of Paul here, give us great hope that people who have fallen this far, who have become this deformed, dishonored, and unglorified, were sitting in the midst of the church. Gentiles who had been redeemed out of these things. Pay attention to the verb tenses and the way in which Paul's unpacking this. He's not calling the Gentiles to a specific account. He's just saying, I know you, and God knows you, and you need to be encouraged that he can save, and this is scripture, to the uttermost. So as the church, how should we deal with these kinds of things? Well, first, soberly. Because the gravity of the situation is eternal. And the situation is bleak indeed if that is where folks are left. And so who is it that is going to call? Who is the instrument that is supposed to go into these kinds of darknesses and say to those who sit in this darkness, come out? We the church are. We are the ambassadors of reconciliation. We should be a hospitable people for whom those who are in this kind of darkness see a flicker of the glory of God in us and are drawn to us. Now, chances are these folks won't come to church first. 
I know you think that'd be the easy route. I know you think that would be, let's just get them to Cameron and Matt and Robbie and Chris, and maybe one of those guys can fix them with a, with a monologue. <laughs> I believe in the power of the Spirit, and I trust the monologue. Don't get me wrong. But that's not usually how this goes, is it? It usually occurs through hospitality and relationship. It's going to be a personal relationship with you first, most likely. And so, do people in your spheres of influence struggle with sin? Is there a gravity to the sin with which they struggle that is deforming and dehumanizing them? Do they see that deformation and that dehumanization? And what are you giving them as alternative? See, we must give an alternative of the most creative, hopeful, winsome people in any given circumstance. Not a people who think that everything is going straight to hell in a cultural, political, and national handbasket. That that somehow, if we could just get all the, the settings right culturally, then we wouldn't have to worry about this kind of stuff. Think about how selfish that is. That we would choose comfort and safety while others would perish and go to hell. Now, did I just say that the culture doesn't matter and that we shouldn't use, vote, or use our influence at all or think? No, that's not what I said. What I am saying is certain things are primary and certain things are secondary. Just like last week, we said our feelings matter, don't they? They affect us deeply. If you come to church not feeling well because you stayed up too late last night catching up on some show or, or the NBA uh, uh, playoffs that have started, uh, I want to say praise be to God, but I probably shouldn't. And so, <coughs> so as, as an NBA fan, uh, so maybe you stayed up too late. Maybe, maybe you had some, some, some Chinese food late. Maybe you ate an entire tub of ice cream because you just thought you deserved it. And you come in feeling not well. Now, can I overcome that with a monologue? Can Josh sing well enough and play the guitar well enough? Can, can we overcome your feelings? Probably not. So, what, so then who has, to, who has to put them in right place? You do. You have to recognize they matter, but they're not primary. In the same way, we tend to think that what other people have control over, that if, if the setting was just right, then people would come to Christ in droves. Look at the history of Israel. Every time they had everything they wanted, politically, safety, and security, what did they do? Which way did they run? away from God. It became deformative. It became dehumanizing. Now, did I just say that all pleasure is bad? No. But it must be oriented rightly and given thanks for and recognized that it's more dangerous actually than suffering. If we're not careful, we could think the wrong thing about it in ourselves. And so what Paul's doing here is helping them to see that there's a reason for hope and that they, being unified together as a church, this is necessary. If they're going to reach more Gentiles, which remember, who is Paul called to? These kinds of folks. Can you imagine trying to reason with this crowd who've fallen this far and has all of these sins present? Can you imagine a church service that contained these folks? We're trying to argue with them at Mars Hill and other places. Remember, 
He often almost got killed and should have were it not for the sovereign hand of the Lord to preserve him, right? And so, so there is great hope in the midst of these kinds of things that we should recognize and not turn people over ourselves. No, we, like Paul says, though we have often had to, to, to turn people over to Satan, which is akin to this, remember what he followed up with in 2 Corinthians. Make sure that they know that you love them. How do you do that if you're not in relationship with them? How do you do that if you don't know where they are? How do you do that if you have forsaken them? Because we should have hope. Not, not silly hope. Not name, You can't claim anything because it is in the sovereign purview of God for him to do what he's going to do in someone's heart. It is utterly mysterious to me. And he sometimes picks people I wouldn't pick. Some days that includes me. That's in, within myself. And so we have to recognize both the gravity of the circumstance be sober about our sin, and that begins with us, right? What fire are you playing with? What kinds of things are you, are you engaging in? Let me just tell you, I've been doing this for a while, and I got my start uh, mostly with, with people who were addicted and, and at the rescue mission, and, and it was often very stark to see someone being drawn to the gospel and redeemed. You would see a light going in their eyes. There's a guy in particular named Bobby that grieves me still to this day. I saw the light come on in Bobby, and he was a different man. He'd been transformed from what I could tell by the gospel, but he, he started to play with fire. He kind of inched his way back into the old life, that old man, and, and every inch he took, the light, I could see it. It was one of the most shocking things. You could see the light going down. And then one day, I saw him out on the street, and if you know anything about uh, what people look like when, they're, when they are Jones and bad, when they are looking for their fix, it is the most dehumanizing thing you will ever witness. His jaw was working in a very unnatural way from side to side. He looked skeletal. His skin was drawn tight. He hadn't eaten well, and I don't know how long. His skin was like a dusky, sallow color. And his eyes were yellow. And there was no light that I could see. And I came up to him, I said, Bobby. And he didn't even recognize me at first because that was so out of context. And his body was moving in a very unnatural way. I said, Bobby, what, what, what happened? What, what, are you, what are you doing? What's going on, man? And he just told me to get away from him. I don't know the end of Bobby's story I do know he, he, he was arrested and put in jail for a while. And maybe the Lord was able to reach him in and through that circumstance to pull him out of what he had been turned over to. But let me just say, just so you don't go thinking, well, yeah, Cameron, that's the rescue mission. No, I, I, I've seen it in church folk too. To where they begin to turn themselves over to something or someone they shouldn't or something they shouldn't. And you can see it begin to change their countenance. There's a, a joy that begins to leave them. There's a kindness that is reduced. There's an anger that rises. All of those are warning signs. You're being turned over. And the question is, for what purpose? That's a sobering thing. Well, while you still got breath in your lungs, 
It is for the purpose of drawing you back, which is why we, the church, can be hopeful even though we grieve those kinds of circumstances. It means that we as the church can pray completely different than instead of being cynical or angry with God or, or thinking that he has forsaken us or just saying, well, God, you're going to do what you want to do anyway, so what, what good does it do for me to pray? No, we want to participate in assailing heaven like the, the persistent widow crying out for those we love and care for whom we have seen turned over to this kind of thing. This kind of thing should cause us to become a more dependent and prayerful, hopeful, sober church. Because these folks are being reduced to a commodity. And remember, in Satan's economy, what is the end investment? What do you reap? Death. All he's concerned with. He doesn't want followers. He doesn't, he doesn't care about Marilyn Manson that much. He, he, what he wants is good church folk who say, I'm better than that guy. Think about the Pharisee and the tax collector and how the Pharisee prayed. Oh, Lord, thank you for not making me this, this, and this. It's kind of like that story by Flannery O'Connor called Revelation where she goes along and says, thank you for not making me white trash and thank you for not making me like the African-American folks who work on my land, Lord, until she has a revelation and realizes she is no better. See, this is what Paul's trying to get us to see is don't waste your effort and energy separating over something that unites you, which is your need for Jesus. Be sobered by that and be hopeful that you can, you can be saved to the uttermost, that you are not a commodity. What's interesting is worshiping God is the only worship that actually raises us up to the level of that thing that we worship, that actually makes us more like what we worship in a way that crowns us with honor and glory. All other worship is deformative and takes away honor and glory. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says of this passage. He says, the things that should give deepest contact of personality with personality on the human level are destroyed. So he's talking about that Genesis 1 connection, that what we were created for, to be fruitful and multiple and have dominion as man and woman, being able to display the fullness of the character of God together instead of apart. Now that's been destroyed here. We have lost contact with the primary reference point, a personal God. When we do this, the next level of contact of human personality, which should be so beautiful and so wonderful, is also turned into something unwholesome. Man and woman standing in the presence of God should be able to relate personality with personality in a deep way. But because of mankind's rebellion, that relationship has become a commodity to be traded on. Let us remember soberly that nothing, nothing builds us up, nothing crowns us with honor and glory except for the Lord our God. And he does so in and through sending his son Christ to die on our behalf, to raise on our behalf in resurrection and newness of life, to ascend to heaven where he is interceding for us right now. He doesn't stop loving us or, or seeking to, 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 to love us. He sends the angels and the Holy Spirit to do his bidding in our lives. And then he's coming again to make all things new. What an amazing and glorious truth that this is. That should be what gives us hope. 
And so what should the deformation of God's image in you and your life through dishonorable passions, what should that result in? Well, it should result in you running to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for you. And if that's true for you, if that's where you can run to receive what you need in a time of mercy and grace, are you better than anybody else in having access? Does that access to the throne make you better than anybody else? No, it makes you an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to let everybody else know the way. And this should be who we are. Sobered by it, hopeful in it. Recognizing that the people he was talking to had come out of this very depth of darkness. And that it is not a unique sin, but Paul had a very specific reason for choosing it to get them to see something very specific. This should affect how we share with our friends and neighbors. So Romans 1, 26 through 27 teaches us that God's merciful judgment further gives us over to dishonorable passions that deform his image in us as a result of our suppression of his truth. And this should sober us and give us hope as the church. Would you join me, church, in first recognizing with great sobriety the cost of sin in our own lives so that we don't return like dogs again to our own vomit? That's strong language, but I think it's true. That we would not allow ourselves to, to be deformed because we have failed to use the means of grace or failed to, to uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance or failed to assess are we displaying the fruit of the Spirit? Do we look anything like Jesus? And as you do different things where other people can see you, ask that question. Does this look anything like Jesus? And if you think that Jesus has called you to always flip over tables, you could not be more wrong. That was not the fullness of his ministry, and you are not the single arm of the justice of God. There are times to flip tables. But that is in God's purview. And you need to think long and hard about that. And if you were wise, you would ask somebody. Because there's always time. Ask somebody you trust. Ask somebody like myself or one of the elders. Hey, I'm fixing to flip this table. What do you think? And as one who's not afraid to flip a table or two, I won't outright tell you no. But there's ways to flip. And there's circumstances in which you shouldn't. That's just Ecclesiastes. I don't think it actually says a time for flipping tables and a time not. But it uses other very similar language. And so be careful. Care about what you're displaying for the life of the world. So let's be a church that does that. That has great hope in what the Lord can do for all the prodigals who've left this place and all the ones that will leave it. All the ones that have left our spheres of influence. That they would know that there's a father ready to receive them, to restore them, and a church ready to receive them and restore them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sober us. You don't allow us to think lightly of our sin. That you display to us that, that there is a great, great cost in this life and potentially in eternity. Help us to see individually where our sin, the ones that plague us, deform us, they don't crown us with honor and glory. Would you help remind us of the truth of Colossians 3, that there's a way in which we can both mortify and vivify, and that always begins with looking to Jesus. Help us, Father, look not to the things of the earth and not get tangled up in what is displayed in the earth. This is a fallen world. 
It's always going to be a mixed bag. Help us instead look to that which is fixed and finished, Christ the King. Help us to be a church that has great hope because of that King. Help us to be a church that deals with those who are fallen with great hope and the message of the gospel that is good news instead of being so thoroughly condemning as if it's a zero-sum game. Help us, Lord, to look like you. In Christ's name, amen.